Thank you for downloading this episode of our podcast. Hi, and welcome to the podcast for Solomon Staircase Masonic Lodge number 357, where we talk about all things related with Freemasonry, including Hermetic teachings, philosophy, reason, spirituality, and much more. We're located in Buena Park, Southern California. Tune in as we continue to update our podcast with informative talks and articles for Masons worldwide and those who would like to inquire within. So we are finally into book two of Mackey's Revised History of Freemasonry. And as I'm opening up book two here to chapter 33, um, obviously continuing on from book one, made me realize the book I have here in my hand is 100 years old. So this is a 1921 print. So pretty awesome when you think about it. And it's in really good condition. Chapter 33, The Royal Society and Freemasonry. We will now examine the hypothesis that Freemasonry was instituted in the 17th century and in the reign of Charles II by a set of philosophers and scientists who organized it under the title of the Royal Society. This is the last of those theories which try to connect the Masonic Order with the House of Stuart that we will have to investigate. The theory was first advanced by an unknown writer in the German Mercury, a Masonic journal published about the close of the 18th century at Weimar and edited by the celebrated Christopher Martin Weiland. The writer in this article says that Dr. John Wilkins, one of the most learned men of his time, and the brother-in-law of Oliver Cromwell, becoming discontented with the rule of Richard, Cromwell's son and successor, began to plan the means of reviving the royal authority. With this view, he suggested the idea of organizing a society or club in which, under the pretense of studying the sciences, the friends of the king might meet together for entire freedom. General George Monk, famous as military commander in Scotland, and also as the admiral winning a victory over the Dutch, and several other army men who had scarcely more learning than would enable them to write their names, were members. Their meetings always begun with a learned lecture, for the sake of form, but the conversation afterwards turned upon politics and the interests of the king. The Politico-Philosophical Club, which later on assumed, after the Restoration, the title of the Royal Society of Sciences, the writer in the Mercury asserts to have been the origin of the Fraternity of Freemasons. We have already had good reason to see, in the formation of Masonic theories, what little respect has been paid by their framers to the facts of history, nor does the present hypothesis afford any exception to the general rule of rash claims and groundless guesses. Christoph Frederick Nikolai, a learned bookseller of Berlin, wrote and published in 1783 an essay on the accusations made against the Order of Knights Templar and their mystery, with an appendix on the origin of the Fraternity of Freemasons. In this work, he vigorously attacks the theory of the unknown writer in Wyland's Mercury, and the reasons on which he grounds his dissent are well chosen, but they do not cover the whole ground. Unfortunately, Nikolai had a theory of his own to foster, which also in a certain way connects Freemasonry with the real founders of the Royal Society, and his attack upon the hypothesis of Wyland's argument in its whole extent also weakens his own. Two negatives in most languages are usually held to be equal to affirming, but nowhere are two fictions to be united into a truth. The arguments of Nikolai against the Wyland theory are, however, worth some mention before we examine his own. 
Nikolai says that Wilkins could scarcely have been discontented with the government of Richard Cromwell, since it was equally as much of an advantage to him as that of his father. He was, and he quotes Wood in the Athena Oxionesis as his authority, much opposed to the court and was a zealous Puritan before the rebellion. Wilkins in 1648 was made the master of Wadham College in the place of a royalist who had been removed. After the beheading of Charles I in 1649, he joined the Republican Party and took the oath of loyalty to the Commonwealth. He married the sister of Cromwell in 1656 and under Richard received the valuable position of master of Trinity College, which, however, he lost upon the return to power of the monarchy in the following year. Is it credible, says Nikolai, that this man could have instituted a society for the purpose of advancing the restoration of the king, a society all of whose members were of the opposite party? The celebrated Dr. Goddard, who was one of the most distinguished members, was the physician and favorite of Cromwell, whom, after the death of the king, he attended in his campaigns in Ireland and Scotland. It is an extraordinary assertion that a discontent with the administration of Richard Cromwell should have given rise in 1658 to a society which was instituted in 1646. It is not less extraordinary that this society should have held its own meetings in a tavern. It is very certain that in those days of somber Puritanism, the few taverns to be found in London could not have been used as places of meeting for associations consisting of men of all conditions, as is now the custom. There would have been much imprudence in thus exposing secret deliberations on an affair equally dangerous and important to the inspection of all the spies who might be congregated in a tavern. He asserts that the first meetings of the society were held at the house of Dr. Goddard and of another member, and afterward at Cheapside and Gresham College. These facts are proved by the records of the society as published by its historians. As to the statement that Monk was one of the members of the society, a fact that would be important in strengthening the theory that it was organized by the Friends of the Monarchy and with the design of its advancing its restoration, Nikolai shows the impossibility that it would be correct. Monk was a prisoner in the Tower from 1644 until 1646, and after his release in that year spent only a month in London, not again visiting that city till 1659, when he returned at the head of an army. Then he was engaged in the arrangement of such delicate affairs and was so narrowly watched that it was not possible to believe that with his well-known caution he would have taken part in any sort of political society whatever, while the society would have acted very carelessly in admitting to his ranks military men who could scarcely write, and that too at a time when distrust had risen to its height. But there is a better proof than any advanced by Nikolai that Monk had nothing to do with the establishment of the Royal Society, whatever may have been its object. His name does not appear upon the list of original or early members taken from the official records and published by Dr. Thompson in his History of the Society. Finally, Nikolai asserts truthfully that its later history has shown that this society was really engaged in scientific pursuits and that politics was altogether banished from its discussions. He also contends, but with less accuracy, that the political principles of its members were opposed to the restoration of the monarchy, for which statement there is no positive authority. Nikolai concludes that there is no truth in the statements of the nameless writer in Wyland's Mercury except that the restoration was opposed in secret by a certain society. Therefore, he advances his own theory, no less unsound than the one he is opposing. 
Nikolai claims that this society was the Freemasons, who had nothing in common with the other except the date of foundation, and whose views in literature as well as in politics were of an entirely, entirely opposite character. This was the theory of Nikolai, not that Freemasonry originated in the Royal Society, but that it was established by certain learned men who sought to advance the experimental philosophy which had just been introduced by Bacon. But the same idea was favored by the founders of the Royal Society, and as many of the supporters of this school were also among the first members of the Royal Society, it seems difficult to separate the two theories so as to make of each a distinct and independent existence. But it will be better to let the Berlin bookseller explain his own doctrine in his own language before an attempt is made to apply it to its usual tests of criticism. He begins by asserting that one of the effects of the labors of Andrea and the other Rosicrucians was the application of a wholesome criticism to the examination of philosophical and scientific subjects. Nikolai even thought that the Fama Fraternatus, or the fame and confession of the Rosy Cross, the great work of Andrea, had first suggested to Bacon the notion of his immortal work, The Advancement of Learning. At the same time in which Bacon flourished and taught his inductive philosophy, a method of discovering and proving general propositions, the Rosicrucians introduced a system of philosophy which was founded on the study of the action of nature. Lord Bacon had treated these views in the above book, De Augmentis Scientarum, except that he rejected the Rosicrucian method of secret instruction. Everything that he taught was to be open and free. Therefore, as he had written his great work in the Latin language for the use of learned, he now composed his new Atlantis in English, that all classes might be able to read it. This work contains his celebrated romance of the House of Solomon. Nikolai thinks this story of Bacon's may have had its influence in the origin of the Society of Freemasons. Bacon, in this flight of imagination, supposes that a vessel lands on an unknown island called Bensalom, over which in days of yore a certain King Solomon reigned. This king had a large establishment, which was called the House of Solomon, or the College of the Six Days' Work, in allusion to the six days of the account by Moses of the creation. He afterwards describes the great equipment which was there employed in physical researches. There were deep grottoes and tall towers for matching the events of nature, artificial mineral waters, large buildings in which meteors, wind, rain, and thunder, and lightning were in imitated, extensive botanic gardens, and large fields in which all kinds of animals were collected for the study of their instincts and habits, and houses filled with all the wonders of nature and art. There were also a great number of learned men to whom the direction of these things was entrusted. They made journeys into foreign countries and prepared reports on what they saw. They wrote, they collected, they examined evidence, and worked out results and discussed together as to what was proper to be published. This romance, says Nikolai, was in accord with the prevailing taste of the age. It did far more to spread the views of Bacon on the observation of nature than this great writer's more learned work had been able to do. The House of Solomon attracted the attention of everybody. King Charles I was anxious to bring about something like it, but was prevented by the civil wars. Nonetheless, this powerful idea, associated with that of the Rosicrucians, continued to agitate the minds of the progressive men of that period, who now began to be convinced of the necessity of experimental knowledge. Accordingly, in 1646, a society of learned men was established, all of whom were of Bacon's opinion that philosophy and the physical sciences should be placed within the reach of all thinking minds. They held meetings at which, believing that instruction in physics was to be sought by a general exchange of ideas, 
they made many scientific experiments in common. Among these men were John Wallace, John Wilkins, Jonathan Goddard, Samuel Foster, Francis Glisson, and many others, all of whom were, 14 years afterward, the founders of the Royal Society. Proceedings like these were not in accord with the mental condition of England at that period. A gloomy spirit had overshadowed religion, and a mystical theology, almost Gnostic in its character, had infected the best minds. Devotion had passed into enthusiasm, and that into bigotry, and bloody wars and revolutions were the result. Then it was that such skillful users of men as Cromwell and Ireton took advantage of this weakness for the purpose of concealing and advancing their own designs. The taint of this dark and sad character is met with in all the science, the philosophy, and even in the oratory and poetry of the period. Astrology and theurgy, or magic, were then in all their glory. Chemistry, which took the place of experimental science, was as obscure and dimly lighted a study as every other species of learning. Its facts were veiled in the allegories of the alchemists and the Rosicrucians. A few wise men, disheartened by this darkening of intellectual light, had organized a society in 1646, but as they were still burdened with a remnant of the popular prejudice, they were friends of the esoteric or secret method of instruction. They did not believe that human knowledge should be freely taught so as to become within the reach of all. Thus their society became a secret one. The first members of this society were, says Nikolai Elias Ashmol, the celebrated antiquary, William Lilly, a famous astrologer, Thomas Wharton, a physician, George Wharton, William Outred, a mathematician, Dr. John Hewitt, and Dr. John Pearson, both clergymen, and several others. The annual festival of the astrologers gave rise to this association. It had previously held one meeting at Warrington in Lancashire, but it was first firmly planted at London. The object was to build the House of Solomon in a real sense, but the establishment was to remain as secret as the island of Bensalem in Bacon's New Atlantis. That is, they were to be engaged in the study of nature, but the instructions were to remain within the society in an esoteric form. In other words, it was to be a secret affair. Allegories were used by these philosophers to present their ideas. First were the ancient columns of Hermes, by which Jamblichus pretended that he had cleared up all the doubts of Porphyry. You then mounted, by several steps, to a checkered floor divided into four regions to denote the four superior sciences, after which came the types of the six days which expressed the object of the society, all of which was intended to teach the doctrines that God created the world and preserves it by fixed principles, and that he who seeks to know these principles by an investigation of the interior of nature comes the closer to God and obtains from his grace the power of controlling nature. This, says Nikolai, was the essence of the mystical and alchemical doctrine of the age, so that we may conclude that the society which he has been describing was in reality an association of alchemists, or rather of astrologers. Nikolai may have been indebted for these allegories to the alchemical writings of that period to which he refers. He may have drawn on his own imagination for them. We are uncertain which of these is the truth, as he cites no authorities. But in them we may plainly detect Masonic symbols, such as the pillars of the porch of the temple, the mystical ladder of steps, and the mosaic pavement. Thus it is that he seems to find a connection between Freemasonry and the secret society that he has been describing. He still further pursues the theory of their likeness by the following remarks. It is known that all who have the right of citizenship in London, whatever may be their rank or condition, must be recognized as members of some company or corporation. 
but it is always easy for a man of quality or of letters to gain admission into one of these companies. Now several members of the society that has just been described were also members of the company of Masons. This was the reason of their holding their meetings at Masons Hall in Masons Alley, Bessinghall Street. They all entered the company and assumed the name of free and accepted Masons, adopting, besides, all its external marks of distinction. Free is the title which every member of this body assumes in England. The right or franchise is called freedom. The brethren call themselves free men. Accepted means in this place that this is a private society, had been accepted or incorporated into that of the Masons. Thus it was that chance gave birth to that denomination of Freemasons, which afterward became so famous. Although it is possible that some allusion may also have been intended to the building of the House of Solomon, an allegory with which they were also familiar. According to the theory of Nikolai, two famous associations, each of a character peculiar to itself, were at the same period indebted to the same cause for their existence. These were the Royal Society and the Freemasons. Both, he says, had the same object, and the difference in their proceedings arose only from a difference in some of the opinions of their members. The one society had adopted as its maxim that the knowledge of nature and of natural science should be freely given to all classes of men, while the other contended that the secrets of nature should be restricted to a small number of chosen candidates. The former body, which was the Royal Society, therefore held open meetings. The latter, which was the Society of Freemasons, enveloped its transactions in mystery. In those days, says Nikolai, the Freemasons were altogether devoted to the king and opposed to the parliament, and they soon occupied themselves at their meetings in devising the means of sustaining the royal cause. After the death of Charles I in 1649, the royalists becoming still more closely united. Fearing to be known as such, they joined the assemblies of the Freemasons for the purpose of concealing their own identity, and the good intentions of that society being well known, many persons of rank were admitted into it. But as the objects which occupied their attention were no other than to diminish the number of the partisans of Parliament, and to prepare the way for the restoration of Charles II to the throne, it would have been very imprudent to communicate to all Freemasons without exception the measures which they deemed it expedient to take, and which required an inviolable secrecy. Accordingly, they adopted the method of selecting a certain number of their members who met in secret, and this committee, which had nothing at all to do with the House of Solomon, selected allegories, which had no relation to the former ones, but which were very appropriate to their design. These new Masons took death for their symbol. They lamented the death of their master, Charles I. They nursed the hope of vengeance on his murderers. They sought to reestablish the word, or his son, Charles II, for they applied to him the word logos, which in its theological sense means both the word and the son. And the queen, Henrietta Maria, the relict of Charles I, being thenceforth the head of the party, they designated themselves the widow's sons. They agreed also upon private signs and modes of recognition, by which the friends of the royal cause might be able to distinguish each other from their enemies. This precaution was of great utility to those who traveled, and especially to those of them who retired with the court to Holland, where, being surrounded by the spies of the commonwealth, it was necessary to be exceedingly diligent in guarding their secret. Nikolai then proceeds to show how, after the death of Oliver Cromwell and the retiring of his son Richard, the control of public affairs fell into the hands of the chiefs of various parties, whence resulted confusion and dissensions, which tended to render the cause of the monarchy still more popular. 
Most of the military leaders were, however, still opposed to any notion of a restoration. The hopes of the royalists centered upon General Monk, who commanded the army in Scotland, and who it was known had begun to look favorably on propositions which he had received in 1659 from the exiled king. Then it became necessary to bind together their secret committee still more closely that they might treat of Scottish affairs in reference to the interests of the king. They selected new allegories which symbolized the critical state to which they were reduced and such virtues as prudence, concord, and courage which were necessary to success. They adopted a new device and a new sign, and in their meetings spoke allegorically of taking care in that wavering and uncertain condition of falling, lest the arm should be broken. Probably in this last and peculiar sentence, Nikolai refers to some of the changes in the high degrees made about the middle of the 18th century, but whose invention, like most Masonic historians of his day, he sets down as an earlier date. In regard to what he says about falling and the broken arm, we find Nikolai afterwards quoting a small dictionary which he says appeared about the beginning of the 18th century, and in which we meet with the following definition. Mason's wound. An imaginary wound above the elbow to represent a fracture of the arm occasioned by a fall from an elevated place. This, says Nikolai, is the authentic history of the origin of the Society of Freemasons, and of the first changes that it underwent, changes which transformed it from an esoteric society of natural philosophers into an association of good patriots and loyal subjects. Hence it was that it subsequently took the name of the royal art as applied to masonry. He concludes by affirming that the Society of Freemasons continued to assemble after the Restoration in 1660, and even made in 1663 several regulations for its preservation. But the zeal of its members was abated by the changes which science and manners underwent during the reign of Charles II. Its political character ceased with the coming of the king, and its secret method of teaching the natural sciences must have been greatly upset, if not indeed completely altered. The Royal Society, whose method had been exoteric and open, and from whose meetings politics were shut out, although its members were in principle opposed to the Restoration, had a more successful progress. It was joined by many of the Freemasons, the most prominent of whom was Elias Ashmole, who, Nikolai says, changed his opinions and became a member of the Royal Society. To prevent its weakness or even its death, the Society of Freemasons planned several changes in its constitution so as to give it a specific design. This was undertaken and the symbols of the society were changed so as to put the Temple of Solomon in the place of Bacon's House of Solomon as a more likely allegory to show the nature of the new institution. Nikolai suggests that the building of St. Paul's Church and the persecutions endured by St. Sir Christopher Wren may have had something to do with the selection of these new symbols, but on this point he does not insist. Such is the theory of Nikolai, rejecting the idea that the origin of the Order of Freemasonry is to be traced to the founders of the Royal Society, he claims to have found it in a society of philosophers who met about that time at Mason's Hall in Bassinghall Street. These assumed the name of free and accepted Masons. They claimed in opposition to the views of the members of the Royal Society that all sciences should be taught secretly and therefore held their meetings in private. Their real object being to nourish a political conspiracy for the advancement of the cause of the monarchy and the restoration of the exiled king. Nikolai does not expressly mention the astrologers, but it is very evident that he refers to them as so-called philosophers who started the secret society. To them, therefore, he credits the invention of the Masonic system as it now exists after the necessary changes which the society's own policy and the trials and troubles of the times had brought about. 
Nicholas de Bonneville, the author of the essay entitled The Jesuits Chased Out of Freemasonry, had a similar opinion. He says that in 1646, a society of Rosicrucians was formed at London, modeled on the ideas of the New Atlantis of Bacon. It assembled in Mason's Hall, where Ashmole and other Rosicrucians made changes in the method of initiation of the operative Freemasons, which had constituted only of a few ceremonies used by craftsmen, and substituted a mode of initiation founded in part on the mysteries of ancient Egypt and Greece. They then worked out the first degree of Masonry as we now have it, and to distinguish themselves from common Masons, called themselves Freemasons. Thorey cites this without comment in his Acta Latimorum, and gives it as a part of the reliable records of the order. But ingenious and likely as are these views, both of Nicolai and Bonneville, they unfortunately cannot withstand the real acid test of all truth, the proof of authentic history. It will be seen that we have two hypotheses to investigate. First, that advanced by the contributor to Wyland's Mercury, that the Society of Freemasons was brought into being by the founders of the Royal Society, and that maintained by Nicolai and Bonneville, that it owes its invention to the astrologers who were living in the same period with these founders. Both of these theories place the date of the invention in the same year, 1646, and give London as the place of the invention. We must first direct our attention to the theory which maintains that the Royal Society was the beginning of Freemasonry, and that the founders of that academy were the organizers of the Society of Freemasons. This theory, first advanced, apparently by the nameless contributor to Wyland's Mercury, was exploded by Nikolai in the arguments heretofore quoted, but something may be added to increase the strength of what he has said. We have the straightforward testimony of all the historians of that institution that it was not at all connected with the political contest of the day, and that it was founded only as a means of pursuing philosophical and scientific inquiries. Dr. Thompson, who takes his information from the early records of the society, says that, quote, it was established for the express purpose of advancing experimental philosophy and that its foundation was laid during the time of the civil wars and was owing to the accidental association of several learned men who took no part in the disturbances which agitated Great Britain, end quote. He adds that, quote, about the year 1645, several ingenious men who resided in London and were interested in the progress of mathematics and natural philosophy agreed to meet once a week to discourse upon subjects connected with these sciences. These meetings were suspended after the resignation of Richard Cromwell, but revived in 1660 upon the Restoration. End quote. They met at first in private rooms, but afterwards in Gresham College and then in Arundel House. Their earliest code of laws shows that their discussions were not in secret, but open to properly introduced visitors, as they still continue to be. Weld, the librarian of the society, says that to it, quote, attaches the renown of having from its foundation applied itself with utter untiring zeal and energy to the great objects of its institution, end quote. He states that although the society was not chartered until 1660, quote, there is no doubt that a society of learned men were in the habit of assembling together to discuss scientific subjects for many years previous to that time, end quote. Spratt, in his History of the Society, says that in the gloomy season of the Civil Wars, they had selected natural philosophy as their private means of amusement, and that at their meetings, quote, they chiefly attended to some particular trials in chemistry or mechanics, end quote. The testimony of Robert Boyle, Wallace, and Evelyn, students of science living in the same period as that of the founders, is to the same effect, that the society was simply philosophical in its character and without any political design. 
Dr. Wallace, who was one of the original founders, makes this statement concerning the origin and objects of the society in his account of some passages in my own life. Quote, about the year 1645, while I lived in London, at a time when, by our civil wars, academical studies were much interrupted in both our universities, besides the conversation of diverse eminent divines as to matters theological, I had the opportunity of being acquainted with diverse worthy persons, inquisitive into natural philosophy and other parts of human learning, and particularly what has been called the new philosophy or experimental philosophy. We did, by agreements, diverse of us meet weekly in London on a certain day to treat and discourse of such affairs. End quote. Wallace says that the subjects pursued by them related to physics, astronomy, and natural philosophy, such as the circulation of the blood, the Copernican system of the heavenly bodies, the Torricellian experiment on the pressure of the air, etc. All these authentic accounts of the object of the society show there is not the slightest allusion to it as a secret organization. Nor is there any mention of any form of initiation, but only a reception by the unanimous vote of the members. Reception, as laid down by the bylaws, consisted merely in the president taking the newly elected candidate by the hand and saluting him as a member or fellow of the society. There is the further fact that at the period, many similar societies had been instituted in various countries in Europe, such as the Academia del Corriento at Florence and the Academy of Sciences at Paris, whose members, like those of the Royal Society of London, devoted themselves to the study of science. This encouragement of scientific pursuits may be principally credited to many circumstances that followed the revival of learning, the coming of Greeks into Western Europe, trained with Grecian literature, Bacon's new system of philosophy, which alone was enough to awaken the intellects of all thoughtful men, and the labors of Galileo and his disciples in the study of natural forces. All these had prepared many minds for the pursuit of philosophy by experimental and inductive methods, which took the place of the unscientific dogmas of preceding ages. Through such influences as these, wholly unconnected with any religious or political aspirations, that the founders of the Royal Society were induced to hold their meetings and to earnestly follow up for the public good their philosophical labors without the restraints of secrecy. These efforts came to a successful issue, 1660, in the incorporation of an institution of learned men which at this day holds the most honored and the leading place among the scientific societies of the world. But it is in vain to look in this society, either in the mode of its organization, in the character of its members, or in the nature of their pursuits, for any connection with Freemasonry as an institution entirely different in its construction and its objects. The theory, therefore, that Freemasonry is indebted for its origin to the Royal Society of London must be rejected as wholly without proofs or even likelihood. Of course, the reader will carefully note that the two societies have much in common. For many generations, a very proper pursuit in the studies of every Freemason has been impressed upon him in his necessary attention to the liberal arts and sciences. Equally was this the purpose of the organizers of the Royal Society. Therefore, we may expect to find, and we do find such to be the case, that members, and leading members too, of the one body were active in the other. Like objects brought about companionship. But this does not imply that either of the two societies were used for any but loyal and studious objects. But the theory of Nikolai, which credits the origin of Freemasonry to another society of about the same period, whose members were evidently astrologers, is somewhat more likely, although equally incorrect. Its consideration must, however, be taken up as the subject of another chapter. And that ends chapter 33.
the Royal Society and Freemasonry. Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a comment. We enjoy hearing from our listeners. If you really like what you heard, share this podcast with your friends and lodge members. Visit us online at solomonstaircase.org.